Good morning. The scripture reading this morning comes from James 5:19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Good morning. So there's a, there's a context in which James doesn't make explicit that this passage is really good news. And I, I guess this is sort of a confession and sort of an off the script kind of thing. All week, I, I, it's in, it's in the sermon. What I'm about to say is embedded in the sermon in a few different ways. But as I reread it and prayed over it this morning, uh, it didn't, it's not there the way it needs to be. And so I'm, I'm just going to, before we get to the text itself, uh, let me give you a little bit of context. And that's this. It's a passage about confronting sin in one another, which, you know, there you go. Uh, yeah, that's fun. Um, and so, but, but here's the thing. That only makes sense in the, the broader context. And what I mean by that is, you need to have a real appreciation for what the gospel is, the, the good the good news that hopefully brought you here this morning and makes you want to read the Bible to begin with. And, and secondly, a, a right appreciation of the healthiness of a local church. And I love, we sang a song and John's exhortation couldn't have teed this up better. So I, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but I want you to listen for this as I preach this sermon. And so if you begin with an understanding of the gospel where you're, you know, you were pretty okay, you're a decent person, you haven't murdered villages or, you know, anything like that. And, and you know, God is, he's sort of helpful and he just sort of gets you over the edge. You know, you're almost kind of there, you know, some people that aren't, but you kind of are almost there and God just helped you just go that little bit of extra distance that you needed. And honestly, he's pretty lucky to have you on his team because, you know, you chose him and and that kind of deal. If that's your understanding of the gospel and that what he's really saving you from is sort of a less than fulfilling life, maybe. And if that's your understanding of this, somebody up in your business about your sin, it's just not an appealing thing. It just isn't. And if the local church just exists to make you feel better for an hour a week and and to you know give you that spiritual boost that you need to get you through the job you don't like and the hard kids and all that, and if that's the point of the local church, if our main mission is to give you a sense of meaning and and give you a chance, you know you're you're not that great of whatever, but the church doesn't require you be that great at it, so we let you teach something or. You know, if that's your sense of this, the idea of someone up in your business about your sin is just offensive and it's annoying. And okay, but if your view of the gospel is what I think the Bible lays out, that that in our sin we were enemies of God, that if you get a taste of the holiness of God, you get a sense of your unworthiness, and that the last thing in the world you deserve is to be forgiven and freed by him, but that in love and mercy and grace he offered his son to you, the the death of his son on your behalf, his enemy. (laughs) He sent his son to die for his enemies. That's what your sin and my sin make us before God. 
that he rescued us from that. And not only that, but gave us to a people, like John said, and like we sang, isn't it good? And gave us to a people to love and care for us, to help us be on the mission of glorifying God and enjoying him forever by telling the whole world of this good news, to strengthen one another, to lay our lives down for one another. Well, then all of a sudden, somebody keeping you from wandering back into death and despair and darkness to living irrationally. And all of a sudden, that's a rescue plan, man. That's, that's, that's awesome. That's a gift. It's not easy. It's awkward. It's sometimes offensive. They might even be wrong, but it's a gift. So that's the context uh, that isn't in the sermon. It's in the sermon, but not very well. So hopefully, if you listen that way, I think this less than dramatic closing in the book of James, you know, he says all this stuff and then deal with each other's sin is how he ends the whole thing. Uh, but it'll make this last couple of verses not just tolerable, not just okay. I don't love that, but I guess God says it. So, but something really truly sweet. So listen, listen that way. All right. For the 15th and final time in this, in this short letter, James addressed his readers in, a, in familiar terms, my, my brothers. As I've tried to make clear throughout our time in James, James cared deeply for those to whom he was writing. They were not his enemies that he needed to conquer. They were not strangers that he was indifferent to, but felt obligated to give some truth to. They were, they were not even just wayward or wandering Christians who he needed to correct. Above all, they were James's beloved. Of the 15 times, several of them were not just my brothers, but my beloved brothers. They were his beloved brothers and sisters in Christ that he wanted to help. All of this is to help encourage them to live as God made them to and the fullness and abundant life that Jesus offered and promised by putting God's word into consistent action for God's glory, ultimately, but also for their good. It's fitting, therefore, that James ended. If you flip back to chapter 1, the very beginning of the letter, the first substantive thing he says is, my brothers. And so it's fitting, therefore, that he closes his letter in the same way, restating his affection for his readers. And so let that be a lesson to all of us. Like To get this is to truly be able to sing the second song we sang today. It's, a, it's meant to be a lesson to all of us that our primary relationship, sitting in here right now, especially if you're a member of Grace Church, if you're a guest, we, we welcome you in. One of the lines in the song was, we, we offer you the gift in Christ of belonging. <laughs> Such an amazing gift of the gospel or, or, or benefit of being in Christ. But above all, our primary relationship to one another is brothers and sisters, beloved brothers and sisters. Our first God-given disposition then towards each other is one of love. And our primary duty is encouragement in Christ. So our passage for this morning, James gives one more way, one final, one, one more specific way to do that. How, how do we make that our primary disposition and goal with one another? He gives us one more way, and that is to bring each other back from our sin. It's rarely easy. It's almost never popular, but James, along with the rest of the Bible, makes it plain it is good and right. All right, 
three main hopes, three things I've prayed for consistently this week. You ready? I don't know if I wrote these down or not on your on your handout, but here they are. I want to convince you of from this text or further solidify in your mind if you're already convinced. Help it help it mature a bit more. Uh, the, the biblical basis for confronting sin and those we love. <laughs> All right. Number two is help you to do it well. <laughs> help you to do it in a way that's not abrasive and unhelpful unnecessarily. And third, and maybe most of all, to help you receive that well. It's, it's hard enough to give. It's often harder still to receive. So uh, convince you of or further solidify in your mind the biblical basis for confronting sin in one another. Second, help you to do so in a gracious manner. And third, help you to receive that kind of correction in a gracious manner whenever it comes. So let's pray. Let's pray for God's help in all of that and whatever else he sees fit to give us this morning. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that once again, it's a passage that we probably wouldn't come to if we just if I just preached based on whatever you put on my heart or this is a passage we need, but we wouldn't necessarily feel that we need. We wouldn't necessarily know it on our own, which is why I'm so thankful that you've given us your word to preach. Not not my thoughts, not Pastor Mike's thoughts, John or Kyle's or anyone else at Grace Church ultimately, but your thoughts. Thanks for sharing them with us for your glory and our good. I pray at the end of today that we would have a, a healthier view of our sin and its effects on us and the help you mean to give us, to persevere us in faith, to grant us repentance, and that is oftentimes fellow believers. Help us to not just understand this, but love it and live it. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So just this is 19 and 20, just a few verses earlier, James commanded his readers to confess their sins to one another. So when you become aware that you have sin in your life, Confess that to someone. Don't don't wait for them to come to you. Go to them, confess it, ask them to pray for you and, and help you walk away from that and back towards Christ. Well, in this passage, James is addressing those who have not yet done that. <laughs> there, there is the sin, but they haven't yet confessed it, maybe for different reasons. Um, but, but he has in mind those who have not obeyed verse 16, chapter 5, verse 16. His main charge here, then, in this passage, is that when Christians see other Christians walking in sin, we have the responsibility, the privilege, to help them come back to obedience. So let me say that again. That's sort of the thesis of this whole sermon. Christians, when Christians see other Christians walking in sin, we have a responsibility to help them come back to obedience to Christ. And so let's, let me read it again. My brothers, just so you see it. My brothers, it's on the screen. If, any among, if anyone among you wanders from the, from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Well, far from unique to James, this is the consistent teaching throughout the Bible. Just to give you a, a couple of New Testament examples in Luke 17, 3, Jesus taught, if your brother sins, if another Christian sins, it's like James is writing here, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. There's this, there's this charge for Christians to care about the sins of other Christians. 
in in a similarly broad way, just all, all Christians and sin. And Galatians six, Paul wrote, "Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression or a sin, or as James says, wandering from the truth, you who are spiritual that is not wandered away should restore him in a spirit of gentleness." To elders specifically, or leaders within the church, Paul wrote, and for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. And lastly, and probably if you've ever heard a passage on this, it's Jesus' words in Matthew 18. And he says, if your brother sins against you, more specifically, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, You have gained your brother. In other words, the point I'm trying to establish is this idea of Christians caring about the sins of other Christians is not uniquely a James 5, 19, and 20 thing. It's throughout the Bible. Again, the main point is that Christian love, love for one another, means that it is not an option for someone professing faith in Christ to sit by idly as someone else professing faith in Christ wanders into sin. It is our privilege and responsibility to seek to bring them back like a loving mother does for a lost child. James is calling for a type of spiritual amber alert. All right, Grace Grace Church, let's bring each other back. Someone's wandered away. Let's go get them. We love them. This is dangerous. Let's bring them back. By God's design, we can be and ought to be, are meant to be, a critical conduit for God's saving and sustaining grace. His saving grace when we evangelize the lost and share the good news with them. And his sustaining grace. We we are saved by God through trusting in Christ. We remain united in Jesus by remaining faithful to him. And God God's gift is to keep us remaining faithful to him. And oftentimes he does that through one another. So tragically, it's all too rare for Christians to directly address sin in one another. More tragically still, it's rarer still for Christians to do a good job of it. And and most tragically rare of all are Christians who receive that kind of bringing back, the kind that James talks about in a humble and godly way. So we need help with this. And I I hope this text and sermon are that. I thought a bit this week about why. why. Why is it so hard to do that, to correct well, And also, why is it so hard to receive it well? So I think we often fail to confront, as a Christian, to confront another Christian well in their sin because we don't want to come across as unloving or legalistic or hypocritical. I mean, we might struggle with some of the same things they are. Sometimes we fail to do so because we've heard people, one of the most butchered passages today is, Matthew 7, 1 through 5, where Jesus talks about not judging. And we've often heard really jacked up interpretations of that that make us think. I mean, the way most people interpret that, or at least talk about it, is in direct opposition to what James says here. So sometimes it's just bad Bible studies that make us not want to do it. Sometimes it's because we're, we're legitimately humble, and we know we don't know. I mean, maybe we're wrong, and, and we don't want to. I mean, it's hard enough to do if we knew for sure we're right. We don't know for sure we're right. We might be wrong. So sometimes legitimate humility checks us up here. In my experience, however, the two most common reasons that we fail to confront sin and do it well in one another are, one, that we fail to understand the seriousness of sin, 
We have way too domesticated of a view of what sin is and what it does to our soul. James says that nothing short of soul death is on the line here. And second, we fear man more than God. The second reason is we fear people and their opinion of us more than God. We feel making, fear making people upset with us more than the price we might pay for disobedience to God. On the other side of the equation, why is it so hard to hear and receive well so often? I think mainly it's because we're prideful people who love our sin more than we love God. When we're sure of ourselves and happy in our life, sin and otherwise, it's annoying at best, insulting on average, and infuriating at worst if someone would have the audacity to point out something we might not have quite right before God. In other words, there's all kinds of reasons why it's hard, why we don't, why we don't give correction and receive correction well. But none of that changes the fact here that it is grace. Hear this. It is God's death-saving, sin-covering grace when Christians bring Christians back from their sin. Evidently, this was a problem in James's day, just like it is in ours which is why he wrote this passage. So taking all that into account so far, everything I just said, as you probably know, attempting to do this is fairly intimidating and can be awfully scary. It's often a humbling endeavor to even try it. But if you've ever been a part of helping someone turn back to Jesus, who's wandered away, who's professed hope in Christ and was walking faithfully with them, but wandered away into sin, if you've ever caught a taste of seeing someone like that come back to trusting in Christ, you know that it is awesome. It is remarkable. There are few joys in life that, that match seeing someone trust in Christ for the first time and, and, and secondly, seeing someone come back to Jesus that has wandered away into sin. It's awesome when God sees fit to bless our attempts at faithfully obeying passages like this. Before diving a bit deeper into this passage and its application, three things I want to clear up right away. First, this passage is not referring to Christians confronting non-Christians in their sin. There are passages that speak to that, but this isn't one of them. This passage is a charge to confront those who have wandered, James says, from the truth. It's a passage, you see that, that is to, to call people who have wandered from the truth in order to bring them back, not those who have never accepted the truth or who need to come for the first time. Second, this passage is primarily a word for Christians who have explicitly covenanted with one another, typically within a local church. Its main thrust is not that Christians are equally responsible for every Christian everywhere, that your, that your mission's work needs to be to fly around the earth to Christian churches, find the sinners, and confront them. That's not mainly what this is. It's mainly a charge within the local church. The local church is the main context where James's charge is meant to be lived out. The local church has a significant and prominent place and God's plan for saving and sustaining grace distribution. That's why if you're a member of grace, you know that one of the first things we do is we look you in the eye and we say, if, if you do not want someone to come to you at some point and say, I don't know for sure what's going on, but it looks to me like, like you might be wandering from Christ in this area, confronting you on your sin. If you don't want that, keep coming to Grace Church, but don't become a member. 
because a central part of membership is that we care about one another, whether we're walking in Christ or not. And if you're not willing to do that, to confront someone else in their sin, keep coming to Grace Church. Just don't join because that's right at the heart of what it means to be a member, to care for their soul as you do your own. Third, grace. In this passage, we have yet another reminder of something I think we need reminded of more than almost anything else today. In a, in a Google the word standpoint epistemology when you go home today, or the term. Google that and, and read on it and study it and research it. It is an important term, and here's a, a layman's attempt at counteracting that. Here it is. This is another reminder that what someone thinks they need is never the best indicator of what they really do need. Never, ever, never. Sometimes they're in line with one another, but it's never the same, and it's it, it's never the first, and it's never the authority. What someone thinks they need with what they really need. That distinction belongs to God's word alone. In other words, as you contemplate obeying James here, just because someone says, why can't you just be supportive? Why can't you just support me in this? Or why do you have to be so judgmental? Or who, who, do, you, who do you think you are? Or love is love. Or whatever other form their attempts to deflect the conversation away from God's word as the authority for their sin or righteousness, whatever other form that might take, God's word remains true and every man a liar. So let's settle on those things as we get increasingly practical. Okay, I want to help you understand real quick one more thing, and then we're going to get as practical as maybe I ever have gotten in a sermon. But but there's a key observation I want you to see here, and that's the the in this text there's a relationship between truth and sin. Uh, let me read the passage again and see if you can see it. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering, will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. There's a key relationship that James establishes there between truth and sin. Did you get it? James essentially sees wandering from the truth and sinning as synonymous. He uses them interchangeably. Understanding that wandering from the truth and falling into sin are one and the same is really important because it helps us to see the truly gracious nature of this passage. If something is true grace, write this down, it is also good and beautiful. Which means that if something is false, it is also bad and ugly. Sin, every sin at its core is a lie. It, it tells you something which is that, that seems one way, which is why you go to it to begin with. But at its core, every single sin is a lie. So to call someone back from sin, as James says, is also to call them back from something that is bad and ugly. It doesn't seem like that to them in the moment, or they wouldn't go to it. But it is. And more importantly still, it is to call them to something that is good and beautiful and true. Whether the person in that moment appreciates it or not, that is a real gift. <laughs> that is a genuine gift. In other words, what James calls his readers to do is not just be nitpicky, not, not just be moral janitors or, or moral wrist slappers, hall, hall monitors. What James calls his readers to do is 
not to be nitpicky or even just to keep one another on the up and up. What he calls his readers to in this, and pray this week that God would give you an appetite for this. What he calls them to is nothing. Is to, what he calls them to is to restore one another from sin, which is to say to call them back to the truth. And they're in fullness of life and joy and purpose and all that God has for us in Christ. All right, really practical. How do you do this? And, and how do you do this well? A couple of things. How do we address sin and others in a truly godly way? Okay, uh, first thing here, we need to settle on the fact that sin is deadly. Okay, you with me? Sin is deadly. It's dangerous. It's not to be played around with. It's not something we can pet and domesticate. It needs to be corrected to keep the sinner from falling deeper and deeper into peril. Imagine someone, you're on a, a cruise ship, or nah, that would be different. Imagine you're out on a ski boat. And someone's leaning on the deal and, you know, someone's funny. You're in the ocean, by the way. And, uh, and the driver guns it. Maybe he doesn't know the person is sitting on the deal. And they fall in and everybody's sort of laughing a little bit. And, and then all of a sudden, you, not the person in the water, see shark fins going around that person. So they're laughing and, and they're swimming around. And you notice this. In that moment, their main need is not a sympathetic friend on the ship deck offering words of encouragement. That's not their main need in that moment. Their main need is someone who will shout out the danger, who recognizes it, will shout it out and throw them a rope or, a la- or lower them a ladder or something, whatever that ring is called. They need to throw it quickly to them. It might hit them in the face. That's, that would be bad. But that's what they need right there and right now fast. Sin is really like that in some ways. There are definitely times when our sin puts us in such a perilous place that kind words, even a kind heart from someone else, is a distant second to what they need most, which is an immediate and sharp call to turn back. We have to settle on that. If your view of sin is this big and it's it's only this bad, you don't have any categories for what I just said. But if your understanding of sin is what the Bible holds out. It makes sense. Okay, that said, probably a lot of you maybe need to hear this instead. Some of you need to hear that. You need to be a little bit more aggressive in your calling people back from sin, but probably most of us need to hear this. The Bible is not silent on the kind of motivation and disposition, though, that pleases God and is usually most helpful for the wayward sinner who needs to be brought back. Four key heart dispositions. Pray for this. Before you go to talk to somebody, most of the time you'd be better served praying first over these things. Above all, correcting sin in a manner pleasing to God, that's pleasing to God and good for the sinner, flows out of love. That is, it flows from a genuine desire for that which is best for the wandering person. Before anything else, that mean, this means that sin correction ought not even be our primary interaction with each other. Addressing sin in love, addressing sin in love when it does need to happen, will, you, will best happen in the context of a relationship where, where the bulk of it is encouraging one another and blessing one another and and. and Building one another up in the Lord. That's, that's kind of what I was getting at in my, my intro. 
The opposite of this is generally standalone confrontation flowing from self-interest. That is, all too often, when we do address sin in others, it's outside of the context of an upbuilding relationship and happens because what the person is doing is annoying to us. Or inconvenience, inconvenient to us, not because we love them. And our main aim is to bring them back into full fellowship with Christ. One key way to tell, one easy way to tell whether love or self-interest is our motive is to consider whether we mean, as James says, to bring them back. If our aim is to truly bring them back into truth and righteousness and fellowship with the Father and one another, or simply to stop their sin. If our motivation is just to get them to knock it off, that's a good indication it's probably not in love. Stop being so angry is different from let me walk with you back to peace. Those are two different approaches. Grace under ordinary circumstances, if we're going to address sin in someone else, it ought to begin with making sure we're doing so because we mean to be conduits of grace, God's grace through us to them in Christ. That is, because we love them. Second, and flowing from the first, rightly correcting others in their sin requires a good deal of humility. We really don't know for sure if what we think we're seeing is what we're really seeing. We don't really know for sure that everything everything that's going on in their hearts and minds. It's always possible we're mistaken about the facts or our interpretation of the facts. What's more, our correction will always be driven by the kind of humility that comes from knowing that even if we're entirely right about their sin and even if it's egregious against us, we each, all of us, have sinned a million times more against God, than any person will ever have sinned against us, and yet he forgives us freely and graciously in Christ. That's humility. That's where that kind of humility comes from. It won't keep us from addressing sin, but it will greatly inform how we do, the manner in which we do. Third, as we saw earlier in Galatians 6, normally our correction should be done in gentleness. Knock it off, Bill. I can't believe what a jerk you are in your anger. That's bad. That's not gentle. Good. Bill, I'm not sure I'm seeing this correctly. I don't think there's any bills in here, so this, this isn't meant for any one of you. This isn't practice. And Bill, I'm not sure I'm seeing this correctly, and there's a good chance that I'm not about to say what I mean to say in a way that's going to really help you to get my heart for you. In addition, I'd love for you to know that I'm with you in this no matter what. I'll walk with you in this no matter what it means. That said, I think you should consider whether or not you've acted in sinful anger towards your wife and kids. I've seen several interactions between you guys that make me concerned for you and for them. And above all, though, I want to walk with you in a manner that is pleasing to God, and I'm not sure that's it. Gentleness is the opposite of harshness and is often very similar to kindness. It comes from a soft heart and is not adversarial. Under ordinary circumstances, any sin address should be done in gentleness. And finally, we ought to correct out of a profound sense of dependence on the word and spirit of God. Our own standard of righteousness is not what they need. They just don't need to know what we think about their behavior ultimately. What they need to know is what God thinks. 
Our own standard of righteousness is not what they need. What is revealed in the Bible is. Let's be a people who know this and share scripture with those we're seeking to win back. Let us take them to particular passages in the Bible, help them to see it. Likewise, our own grasp of the Bible, maybe we really have our heads around it well. Maybe we have really persuasive abilities. Maybe we're good at at forming sentences and being persuasive. Those things might temporarily halt someone from a particular action, but they are entirely impotent to bring about the heart change and genuine repentance that they so need. The Holy Spirit alone can do that. So again, when we speak to someone about their sin, as James directs us to do, it ought to be bathed in prayer and in Scripture. All right, we're going to get even more specific. That was pretty practical for a Dave sermon. We're going to get even more specifically practical. We need to consider something that maybe you've never explicitly thought of, but certainly have felt. And that is that not every sinner sees their sin in the same way, which means that not every sinner is going to respond to having their sin pointed out in the same way either. As far as I can tell, there are three basic views of our own sin, the kind that we haven't already confessed to one another. Number one, sinners who don't know yet that they need to be brought back. All right, Sinners who don't know yet that they're sinners, at least not in this particular way. Imagine we've all come across a person who's professing to be a Christian, but who is also walking in some kind of sin without really knowing it. They don't, they don't realize that they have wandered from the truth. Now within that, I think there are two, groups, two, two subgroups that are key to keep in mind as well. They're significantly different, which means our approach needs to be different. The first variety was never taught the specific truth that they've wandered from. I've seen this quite a bit in people who didn't grow up in a Christian home or have never really been a part of a healthy church. Typically, they carry some sinful aspect of their old culture and way of thinking into their new Christian life without realizing it. It might involve certain media intake or relationship dynamic or something like that. But often people in this group, for them, It's simply a matter of taking them to the Word of God humbly and gently and showing them the passage, and they remorsefully turn from it. Not always, but often. The second variety who fall into this sort of not-knowing-it camp, who have wandered into sin and ignorance, are the kind that have been taught it, but don't believe it. They're ignorant in one sense, but obstinate in a more important sense. They've been taught that sexual relationships outside of marriage are sin. They just don't believe it, or they believe it was for back then, but not today, or some version of that. They've been taught that cheating on their taxes is sin, but they've convinced themselves that, hey, there's, there's just another way to look at it. They truly don't know they are sinning. They think they're not, even though they are, and even though they've been told that they are. That's a much harder situation to be in and a much harder group to confront. We need to bathe our attempts in that situation in prayer. Truly trusting in God to convict in his timing. That is his job to bring the conviction. And it's our job to bring the word prayerfully and to point them straight to the clearest text that we can find in the Bible. When someone already knows what you're about to tell them, but simply has hardened their hearts to it, it's usually best to use more words with God that is, in prayer, and less words with them. Be clear, be specific, take them to the word, but less words is often better there. Here's a second group. Sinners who don't want to be brought back. 
The second group are those within the church, that is professing faith in Jesus, who already know they're in sin, but have no real desire to turn from it. This is grievous. It's an indication that they may not be truly trusting in Jesus, even if they think they are, even if it has looked in the past like they were. Our role here is primarily to prayerfully move further through the Matthew 18 process of bringing more people in. We, we go to them first on our own, and if they refuse to acknowledge it as sin, we, we bring someone else along with us and eventually perhaps to the whole church and remove them from membership. This is not a declaration that we know for certain they're not saved. Only God knows that. But it is a declaration that there is no longer good evidence that they are. And the aim of this, though, is never punitive. It's not meant to punish them in in one sense. It's gracious. It's for their good that by God's grace, through that, they might see the sinfulness of their sin. Third, sinners who want to be brought back but seem stuck. How do you how do you talk with them? Of all of all three types of wandering sinners, this one is often the most heartbreaking. Those who fall into this group know they're in sin. They know they are wandering from fellowship with God and other Christians. And they, they, they do. There, there's a, from everything you can tell, a genuine desire to be brought back to Christ. But for whatever reason, they keep falling into their sin and keep falling into their sin and keep falling into their sin and feel powerless to do otherwise. I'm going to come back to that in a second, but let me say something quick before returning to that. I've come across a number of people over the years and I've tragically, sadly, at times I've been one, who seem to fall into this category. That is, we've learned how to put on a show of remorse without a real desire to repent. That's a different issue, and in reality, that that just means we're more cleverly disguising the second group. (laughs) We're in the second group, but we're just better at, at hiding that. We need to eventually, as we figure out that that's the case, Treat them like the group, the, the second group, even though at first it looks like they're in this last one. But for those who have a genuine disdain for their sin, but can't seem to kill it, we need to remember, just remember this grace. Their sin is still sin. But a remorseful, repentant heart is strong evidence of genuine salvation. Therefore, we must not minimize the sinfulness of their sin, but we must maximize the amazingness of God's grace. They don't need our condemnation to crush them as if that's our job. We need to remind them that their sin goes deep, but God's grace goes deeper still. That as we walk with those who seem stuck in sin, prayerfully encouraging repentance while continually reminding them that God's primary disposition to them, even in this fight, even in the struggle, even if it's dark and ugly, God's primary disposition towards them is still one of mercy and grace in Christ. We let the word of God wash over them with its many promises of God's love and compassion and forgiveness and patience. Jesus is enough. His blood is sufficient to cleanse every sin. We sing this regularly. Our sin is great, but his grace is greater still. Our sin goes deep, but his grace goes deeper still. So before I close, I want to say a a, a real brief word about how to receive that well. If that's how you give it well, if that's how you obey James well, how do you receive, be on the receiving end? Well, what do you do then if someone confronts you in your sin? Make it easy. Number one, make it easy. Make it easy for them to do that. Even if it turns out the 
person largely misread the situation and you hadn't sinned in the way they thought, they ought to leave their encounter encouraged and thankful for your faith. Thankful that you cared enough to talk to them about this and were humble enough to listen. They ought to come away encouraged in your faith, not battered and bruised for having had the audacity to accuse you of something that wasn't true. Recognize it for the grace of God that it is, that someone would love you in that way, even though it was undoubtedly hard. With that, assume there is some measure of truth in it. Assume, don't don't hear it assuming they're wrong. Receive it assuming there's some measure of truth in what they say. And as you find it, focus on that, not what they might have gotten wrong. You with me, Grace? Assume that if someone loves you well enough, if, if they're in a church with you, if they're a member of Grace Church and they come to you, assume there's something true in what they say and focus on that, not what they might have gotten wrong. Take some time to pray about it if you need to, but do so under the assumption that God will reveal some part of that and focus on that. And, and, and then also with that, confess your sin to whatever degree you see it as soon as you see it. If they're accusing you of 10 things, or something on a 10 magnitude and you only see two, confess that right away as sin. Respond in a manner consistent with God's word. It ought to sound something like this. Sally, to be honest, no Sally's in this room either, I don't think. I purposefully pick names that none of you have. Sally, to be honest, that kind of stunk. <laughs> that hurt a bit. Made my, my, my flesh made me want to deny and lash out. By God's grace, however, I was able to move past that, I think, pretty quickly and really consider what you said. I know I'm going to appreciate this even more in the future, but even now, I'm thankful that you are willing to be honest with me and help me turn from this, from my sin. I'm sorry for whatever it is. Please, please forgive me, and I'd, I'd love it if you'd pray for me and help me turn from it in true and swift repentance. Make it easy. Make it easy. Make it easy. That would be good to write down too. Those of you who are note-takers, make it easy. Second, having heard what the person shared, ask for the Holy Spirit's help to determine which of the three categories of sinners you're in right now. Which of these, which of these categories of sinner are you? The kind that doesn't yet know it, and this is news to you, the kind that knows it but doesn't care, or the kind that knows it but wants, wants to turn from it and is struggling. Ask for the Holy Spirit's help. You, you need to be honest with God and yourself before you'll ever be able to be honest with the brother or sister who came to you and find the help of God that he means to give you through them. Lastly, how do you receive this well? Take the initiative. Take the initiative. What do I mean by that? Regularly ask godly people in your life if they see any sin in, in it in your life. Don't wait for them to come to you. Go to them. Have two or three people that you trust that are mature enough in their faith and close enough to you in life to say to them, please, don't wait until some big sin is in my life. Don't don't wait until I'm tempted to murder a village of people. Come early. Come soon. Come often. Come before you're sure. Give them a blank check to talk to you anytime they catch a hint of sin that you don't seem to see. And remind them often, hey, remember that blank check I gave you? Cash it, man. Cash it. I, I need that. So make it easy. Ask for help of the Holy Spirit. 
and take the initiative. In conclusion, and by the way, this is the last textual sermon from James next week. Uh, I'm going to, whenever I finish preaching through a book, I uh, give a kind of a summary sermon next week through all, all five chapters. Pastor Mike's going to preach the following week on some glorious passage that we, I don't know yet, uh, to give me a week to prepare to preach through John's gospel. And so the following week, the first Sunday in September, we'll begin uh, going through John's gospel. So in conclusion, both in this sermon and in the text itself, the, the letter of James, let's begin where we began, or let's, let's end where we began. When someone professes faith in Jesus, but has given themselves over to unconfessed, unrepentant sin, let's settle on the fact, Grace, whether it's us or someone else in our church, they are, they're in a really, really dangerous place. Their souls, James wrote, need to be saved from death and their sins need to be covered. Of course, Christ alone can do that and has done that for all who are trusting in Jesus. But once again, Jesus often uses means to accomplish his persevering purposes. James tells us that addressing the sins of our brothers and sisters in Christ when we see them and they don't is one such means. Our aim, remember this, is the reconciliation and restoration. Our motive is love. And our hope is that by being faithful to God's will in the lives of those calling on the name of Jesus, and especially those we've covenanted together as a church, we will be participants. This is an awesome privilege of God's work to save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins.